Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to make our way. Thanks for your, just your patience last week. It was kind of a, a little bit of an audible with um, the funeral out of town. So we, we really started 1 Peter one week and we said, okay, let's pause and come back to it. Great. Too loud for you? It feels loud to me. All right. That's all right. All right. Drew just says, don't dare touch that volume. Okay. Let's, uh, let's pray. We're going to cover verses 3 through 9. So that's quite a chunk. If you, if you take a look at it, there is a lot there. So part of the, the challenge, but the joy in Sunday school with Equip is, I mean, technically we could slow this down to, to, to a quarter speed and take a really long time, but we're going to wrap our, our hands around this whole passage and, and keep moving. Um, so let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask for the Lord's help. If there's anything fruitful that's going to come from the time a, his word has to be honored, of which we want to do. May our posture be as it ought to be. And uh, we need the Lord's help in all of that for understanding is also, also his grace to apply it for his glory. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the cool morning, uh, the beautiful weather outside. We thank you for the joy of being able to gather with your people. We're grateful for this local church, its, its faithfulness, its fidelity to your word. It's love for you and its people. We thank you for the friendships and all that we share in Christ, your son. And Lord, we even get to revel still more as to what we do share in Christ, your son, here in First Peter chapter 1. We would ask that your spirit would illumine our minds, give us understanding, help us to see the depth and grandeur of all that is ours because of Christ and solely because of Christ. Keep us humble in this task. And Lord, we do ask for grace as we want to joyfully place ourselves into submission to your word with all of its wondrous implications for our life. We ask for wisdom and insight to this end for your honor and praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Our mantra for the study, does anyone remember? Mantra from the study, it's coming from the chapter 5, verse 12, 1 Peter, extracted right from that. Anyone recall? The mantra was to stand, okay, stand firm. Excellent. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. One of the things we did two weeks ago is look at the bookends of this, of this letter, uh, the beginning and the end, and we get a lot of explanatory information bound up in, inside. Chapter 5, verse 12, we have the purpose written for us. Through Sylvanus, Peter writes, Our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, and here it is, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And then there's the purpose. Stand firm in it. And I love simplicity. That's good for my, my soul. I need it to be simple. Uh, one of the things we conveyed is that persecution has no doubt been a part of the early church inception from the get-go, right? But even more, what's about to happen within the context of Asia Minor and where these believers are scattered throughout is what's going to fall upon the church is an intensified form of really state-sponsored persecution at the hand of Emperor Nemo. And so First Peter is written to a church that's facing some serious, serious trials. In a sense, God is prepping them for not only the trials that they're walking through, but also the trials that he have, has already ordained and knows and establish for his people for their good. Now, like any human beings and any group of human beings, what are some of the temptations that come our way when trials hit us? And you just give me a couple. What's that? Dis discontent. Thank you. I heard dis something. Okay, perfect. What else? Huh? Withdrawal, isolation. Hmm? Compromise, that's right. Worry, anxiety, fear, excellent. All of these things come in on us. And these trials, no doubt, these human beings were facing a bit of that as well. I think even when you read chapter 5, verse 12, this is, I'm exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, right? One of the things that they were mulling over is whether or not they were in God's grace and in God's favor with everything that was coming their way and on the horizon. And so God uses Peter to now write to them to affirm that, listen, you are in God's grace. I'm exhorting and testifying of these things and that you are need, you need to now stand firm in it, 
by looking to that glorious salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ, your life is to be marked by hope-filled standing. Now that by itself, as grand and significant as it is, hope-filled standing, is not the whole of this letter. Because Peter goes on to say, and the Lord through Peter, hey listen, you know that living hope that you have, that imperishable inheritance that's kept for you in heaven? All of that glorious hope and future that is yours in Jesus Christ? Well, all of that is to inspire a form of conduct in your life. A form of Christian conduct that, in a sense, honors the very Savior that suffered in your place. And so that is the main idea of all of 1 Peter. Hope-filled standing, chapter 5, verse 12, produces something. Produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. And that really is the outline of the whole entire letter, right? Like so many epistles, you have the first half, lifting high glorious doctrine. All of that hope that belongs to them in Jesus Christ, those believers who were to suffer. And then chapters 2, 11 through chapter 5, verse 11, lays out what a Christian should look like as they stand firm in the grace of God, as they cling and revel in that hope. Hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. This morning, we're going to move to chapter 1, verse 3. When we say hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking, as believers persevere in that standing, that perseverance is going to be exhibited in a godly life, right? Living as good citizens, model slaves, gentle wives, understanding husbands. These are the things that we will unpack throughout the letter. Now, when we do that and we honor Christ through our living, what happens to the world around us as they watch us suffer? What is hopefully a byproduct? They take notice, right? What else? There's an insatiable curiosity. You suffer radically different than I do. That's exactly right. They're prompted to glorify the Lord. I mean, there's no telling what the Lord might do in their life as they watch believers suffer in a, in a way that is <laughs> indeed radically different than them, right? They see chapter 4, where, right, where Peter says that we have entrusted our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is good. And as they see us do what is good, they said, that's a person who has entrusted themselves to a faithful creator. I want to know that creator. Hopefully that is what the Lord brings true in their life. For the main idea of this morning, our passage will be this. Those who possess gospel life have a God-directed worship reflex in the midst of suffering. Let me say that again. Those who possess gospel life have a God-directed worship reflex in the midst of suffering. Our impulses, as those who possess hope, is radically different than the rest of the world. Now, for those that are devoid of hope, what is a natural impulse that they have when suffering enters the picture? Picture someone who does not have hope. What are some of their natural impulses when suffering comes? What? Why? And it's a tormenting question of why, of which they have no resolution to. They can't take that question anywhere for solace and comfort. We have, we ask why too, but we know who to bring the why to and where to have it rest. What else? Depressed, grumbling, complaining. Excellent. What else? Anger, bitterness. What's that? Selfishness. Let me just indulge and drown out the pain. Excellent. There's a lot of other impulses that the rest of the world has, right? What is our impulse? It's to bless who? Our impulse is to bless God in the midst of suffering. And this inclination is quick. And for us, it is steady as believers who are filled with hope. And that's because this is our impulse because we suffer not in hopelessness, right? We suffer in hope of a glory to come. 
Now, this impulse or reflex doesn't always show up as a physical cartwheel across the floor, does it? And jumping up and down and clapping in ecstatic joy. That's not the case. Sometimes this reflex is even expressed in the midst of, no doubt, sorrow and tears, heartfelt pain and anguish. But it's a reflex all the same. And you know, just in real life and experience, what is a reflex? Let's give a definition for a moment. A reflex is an automatic or instinctive action that is performed in response to a given stimulus. An automatic or instinctive action that is performed in response to a given stimulus. And that stimulus creates this sudden instinctual urge to act. Think hammer on the doctor's table across the knee, right? And the action that we see at the top of this letter is the act of blessing God. For us as believers, what is the stimulus that prompts one to respond in this way? What is the reflex hammer, hammer for us? It's the gospel life that we possess. To be in Christ means that there are certain things that are true of us. Let's read of those things now this morning. Verse 3, chapter 1. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for His salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Everyone see that reflex to God-directed worship in the midst of suffering? Those who possess gospel life have a God-directed worship reflex in the midst of suffering. Let's unpack verses 3 through 9 for the sake of time. Number one, God-directed worship is my reflex in the midst of suffering because of a few things. Number one, my gospel life is from above. Verses 3 through 4. And we're going to really slow down the car here in verses 3 through 4 because verses 8 through 9 are only true because verses 3 and 4 are true. Okay? So we have to do some work here. My gospel life is from above. Rendering praise to God... Even while circumstances prove extremely difficult, for you and I can be my instinctive response because my gospel life is from above. This catches our attention here because before Peter does anything else, he rises to pronounce a blessing unto God, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, he doesn't take time to immediately write down of the difficult circumstances at the top of the letter, does he? There's going to be time for that later in the rest of the letter, and, and, and nor does he feel compelled to tell them how to conduct themselves in a living in a world that has fallen and evil and broken. There's going to be time for that as well. But what he does at the very top of the letter is that he calls upon readers, us, to make a very decided and determined prayer of praise. And part of that is because Peter knows that not only is the Lord worthy, most assuredly, But there's something happens when this echo of blessing becomes our reflex and is made in response. There's something supernatural that happens. When we suffer and our reflex is to bless God right out of the gate, what happens to us? What ministry is wrought in our lives when our reflex is to do this? Blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. What does that do to you? What's that? It sharpens and and clears up that outlook and perspective. That's absolutely right. What else? 
It humbles you. Instead of the pride and the arrogance that would well up, being angry and bitter because of the suffering that's in front of you, your instinct is to cast your eyes upward. And that is a supernatural work that the Lord, when, when our reflex is that, He does something in our souls, right? There's a ministry wrought in our lives. Our hearts and minds are transported across the rugged terrain of our own pain and heartache. And that pain that comes from living, obviously, in a world and a, a place that is not our permanent home, right? We are aliens. We are pilgrims, as Peter says, simply passing through. And we feel this every single day. This juncture then, Peter really begins to soar. He flies at an altitude of 30,000 feet and way above the difficult circumstances of life, he begins to unpack what it is that fuels the believer in such blessing. If you need rocket fuel in this task and in this reflex, we bless God the Father because He has accomplished for us what we cannot do for ourselves, right? This is what we mean by our life is from above. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, a lot of rich phrases, who according to His great mercy has, and if you were to underline, underline any word in this passage, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, you want to talk about an impetus of praise at this juncture, Right? I'm going to talk about a driving force behind our blessing God in the midst of difficulties. This is it. This gospel life that's now ours in Jesus Christ is not the result of our own efforts, is it? And because it's not the result of our own efforts, it also means it's not dependent upon us, of which God's people says, Amen and thank you. And so if there's anyone who deserves praise and glory and honor and to be blessed, it is the merciful one who lovingly invaded our lives and performed the miracle of salvation. He caused us to be born again. Now we've covered that in Fundamentals of the Faith, this doctrine of soteriology or salvation, how we are made new, born again, new life imparted to dead sinners, now, we know this in real life, even just on an earthly plane, does any child, does the angling baby in the back, does she take credit for being born this morning? I just did an exceptional job being born into this world. I did most of the work. Or I did part of the work. There's none of that in real life on an earthly plane, and that's true spiritually as well. None of us takes credit for this. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. You see, one of the central tenets of the gospel is that we are a people in need of saving and we cannot save ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't check off enough spiritual boxes. And as we discussed last time, two weeks ago in verses 1 through 2, this great book, the Bible that you hold in your hand, describes us as being a people because of our rebellion against the God who made us. This rebellion that's natural to us from birth. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians 2. There's no life in us. The penalty of sin is what? Death. And that lifeness, lifeness, lifelessness is now ours on this planet. So that all that we deserve is what? Wrath and judgment. So what does God do? In His mercy, He causes us to be born again to a living hope. Again, every word here is important. It always is. But you want to talk about dripping with importance and implication and meaning. We know from John 3 that the same Spirit that is referenced just one verse prior, earlier in this letter interrupts this wretched existence of ours. He gives us abundant eternal life in the place where lifelessness used to reside. We needed a new birth. And that's what He gave us. You'll recall John 3, account with Christ, with Nicodemus, where He says this new birth, listen, is not of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit, a birth from above. This is a life imparted by the miraculous work of a merciful God. His great mercy 
whereby he opens our eyes. He pours breath into our spiritual lungs. He gives perceptive hearing where deafness used to reside. And he replaces a hard and stony heart with a heart of flesh that rests and beats for God. This work is solely, solely, solely the work of the Lord himself. So Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because we have this new birth and been caused to be born again, friends, we have this abiding conviction that something will happen in the future, right? And something will happen in the future to us. Because Peter says they're born again to a living hope. A physical birth brought us into a world that will eventually perish. This world will perish. But spiritual birth is very and radically different. It brings us into a world where there is a hope for the future. And if we're ever tempted to lose sight of this, and we are, if we're ever tempted to lose sight of the magnitude of God's mercy, here it is profoundly highlighted for us. Ours is a hope that now rests not in our own doing, but it rests on that which has already been done, of which all God's people say, Amen and thank you. What is their hope based on? What is your hope based on? Read the rest of the verse. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Our confidence, our hope is not based on some sort of superficial or baseless superstition, is it? No, our hope is based on the finality of what God has already done in His Son. Right? The resurrection of His Son. Now, what's the implication of this accomplished work and this glorious phrase? If He raised His Son from the dead, what is true for us? Think Romans 8, verse 11. What? Huh? He will raise us also. That's exactly right. If, if God raised His Son from the dead, He will also raise those who trust in His Son. Again, we know this. Romans 8, verse 11. Just, just listen as I read it. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and I trust that's the case for you this morning, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and I love this, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You see the implication? You see the ministry that would have been wrought in their lives as they sat in front of this letter being read in the midst of persecution and still more intensifying persecution down the pipe? This is wonderfully encouraging for those scattered across Asia Minor. What is this living hope to which we have been born again? What's it going to look like? Look at verse 4. Phrase after phrase, gold mine after gold mine, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is an inheritance of incalculable worth. And obviously, Peter really begins to find it difficult to find words that do justice in capturing the greatness of our future inheritance, does he? I mean, he's kind of grasping for language. And led by God's Spirit, this is, this is what is penned. And in describing it, he can do no better than the three words that he tells us of what it is not. It's hard to describe what it will be like, but I can sure enough tell you what it is not like. And he puts forward this description by way of contrast, right? To help us wrap our minds around the magnitude of our inheritance in Christ... He can't tell us so much of what it will be like, but he helps us nonetheless by revealing what it is not like. It is not perishable. It's not able to be destroyed. Praise God for that. It's not not able to be defiled. It can't be polluted in any way. And third, it is not fading. It is unfading. There's no subject of decay. Everything that you know in this life and and suffering, which inevitably, in the end, for all people, it's appointed man for to die once, and then comes judgment. Decay awaits everything on this planet. Not so with this inheritance. Again, how encouraging would this have been? Now, what does this inheritance do for us? 
Let's just kind of again group interaction here. What does this type of inheritance do for us in the here and now? Can you think of the how this wonderful salvation truth affects us in the midst of suffering? Think of a few things. Hopeful hope. What's that? Security. Absolutely. Rest, peace, security. Anything else? Yes, yes. We get very myopic, don't we? Where our, we, we have the like blinders on a racehorse and we just, we see what's right in front of us and what I'm going through. When you sit down in the morning and you read First Peter, the blinders come off and you're able to look out, right? And you're, now, now the suffering, it doesn't mean it goes away and it doesn't mean it doesn't still stink walking through it. Let's be honest. But I know that there's not all there is, right? It is an imperishable, undefiled inheritance that will not fade away. Blinders off. Now I can see. And that changes everything, right? For us, we find it hard to imagine a world that's not enslaved by decay, right? That's all we know in this life. From the moment that we're born, we're automatically and immediately on a journey and descent of returning to this earth, being buried (laughs) or perhaps cremated. And, And everything about our life shows that. Our skin, our health, our vigor, or lack thereof, all bear the mark of time. Some of you just said, I'm, I'm further along than others. And that's okay, but all of us are there. This is the course of our earthly existence. So what good news it is for us as believers to consider that when our bodies long since expired, when you reunited with Christ on that final day, as Peter says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ here in a moment, we're going to be made incorruptible forever. Unfading. No decay, imperishable, restored, new, complete. You looking forward to that day? All of us are. This is the inheritance that awaits all of us who are in Christ. Let's keep pressing further. This is not all. God-directed worship is my reflex in the midst of suffering because my gospel life is from above, but also my gospel life is guarded. I can possess this innate and constant urge to bless God and bless God throughout trials because I know who guards me. Now, I also know from real life experience that he may not shield me from trial and suffering this life, and he he rarely does. We're going to see why in in a moment. But Peter does go on to tell us that he does guard you, and that's significant. Look at verse 5. Who, which is you, are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready. And I love that. It's already ready for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God will do the revealing at a time that he has appointed his calendar, his schedule. Now, what's the implication of that protection? You tell me. One of you already said it at one point. Think of the implications of this protection. Cannot be lost. Security, right? Yeah, there's a beautiful doctrine, eternal security, right? Eternal security. Assurance. Sweet, sweet assurance. For us, it's not much use in this life to carefully preserve an inheritance, right? If the heir of that inheritance is not going to live to receive it. Herein lies the implication. God has an an imperishable, unfading, incorruptible inheritance, undefiled inheritance that He's going to guard and protect you to make sure that you are... To the very end, you will have a one day that you will receive that inheritance in full, at least in an experiential 
way and capacity. And so in view of the trials that believers are facing, and they were facing, you're facing, Peter reassures his readers that they are being kept safely by God, and that means everything. Really, this is just another part of the wonder of our hope, is it not? That the same power that keeps our inheritance also keeps us one and the same. And this symmetry is perfect. God keeps the inheritance for us, and he keeps us for the inheritance. We know this in real life, right? When you bring someone, you have to bring someone to a surprise birthday party, right? You can bring the gifts, they're sitting on the table, but someone has to remember to bring the birthday boy or the birthday girl to the actual party. And that's what God, the God says, hey, listen, I know you are suffering and it's about to get even worse. I, I, I have preserved for you this inheritance, glorious, glorious inheritance. And I'm going to bring you through the fire all the way to experience it in full. We know from Scripture that the one who does this great work is God, the one that we just said, blessed be him, right? That he who began a good work in you will, what? Carry it out into completion, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says it's through faith, yes? We are saved by grace through faith. This is the, herein lies the glorious promise of chapter 1, verse 5. That our great God, full of mercy, gives us the gift of faith to trust in his Son, which we've covered in Fundamentals of the Faith, and then that faith is sustained by the power of God to the very end, until that day when salvation is revealed in full. Friends, this is the great scriptural truth from which the doctrine of the perseverance or preservation of the saints rests. That believers will persevere or be preserved in faith to the very end. And God is the one who does the preserving, the protecting, the guarding, a result of His work in our lives. And so you want to talk about an encouragement. These Christians scattered across Asia Minor were a tired lot, to be sure. Through the preaching of the gospel, they had come to know God's grace, but for some time now, they had found life extremely difficult, of which you can say, yeah, I can imagine a bit of what they're experiencing. And what's one possible temptation? Well, when you're in the midst of suffering, and you're, these are new believers, by and large, right? They're coming to faith. They're scattered throughout. Suffering is all they've known, and suffering's going to intensify. We talked about it, right? Rome is about to be burned. Nero's going to blame Christians, and it's going to get really, really bad for Christians here in a short amount of time. What's the temptation? The temptation is to begin to think that this God who saved you has forgotten you. Where's he at? Is he still mindful of me? Am I still in his favor and in his grace? And so knowing their discouragement, Peter writes to them afresh with hope. Listen, church, God has given you gift of faith and hope. And now he's going to fortify you, strengthen you, guard you, protect you, so that you might persist in that faith until the day that you obtain that full expression of your inheritance. God will do this in your life. This is a day that 2 Peter 3.13 says that God will do the revealing of salvation when his son returns and establishes, and you can read it there, very eschatological perspective, right? When he establishes a new heaven and a new earth. It also conveys the fate of this present temporary earth. God-directed worship is my reflex in the midst of suffering because my Gospel life is from above. My gospel life is guarded, verse 5. And third, my gospel life is refined, verses 6 through 7. Peter transitions to remind us that this inheritance will not be the fully experienced without enduring a myriad of trials first, which is a helpful reminder, to be sure. Sometimes suffering still catches us by surprise, doesn't it? Even though from the moment that we're born, all we've known in this life is suffering. This is part of being in a world that is not what it ought to be. Still catches us by surprise that God's chosen and beloved people would experience trials is 
can be, if not careful, can be perplexing, bewildering. So God speaks into this troubling mystery in verses 6 through 9. And as he speaks, your life, my life, can be marked with this sort of mechanical characteristic of heaven-directed worship. Why? Because I know my trials are not pointless or useless. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. This outstanding otherworldly inheritance that awaits you, you greatly rejoice, even though for a, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And if you're going to underline any other thing other than, ca- other than caused again to a living hope to be born again, here it is, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So many gems right there in so little time. One of the reasons we can rejoice, friends, and rejoice in the midst of trials, even though that no doubt they may lead to our distress, right? You have to appreciate how you said this. You have been distressed, and that's what suffering and trials do. It's distressing, (laughs) in a human sort of way. One of the reasons that we can rejoice is because we know that that distressing pain is only brief and temporary, right? From the perspective of of eternity, these trials are simply for, and I like how Peter writes it, for a little while. Even take the believer who's struggling with chronic pain for decades Is it not still for a little while to God? So amazing. Even though now for a little while. What an encouragement to us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it feels like our suffering is going to last forever. And God says, such is not the case. Secondly, we note that not only is it temporary and brief, but God is at, at work in the muck of life. He has a purpose for the pain that we experience. And so because suffering has a limit and has a purpose, which is true, both true, we can still what? We can still rejoice in the midst of suffering. Now, does that mean that suffering is not still painful? Does that mean it just takes away the sting of pain? Or the sting of death, right? It's been taken away, but we still know death in this life. Loved ones still perish. We still attend funerals. We still grieve their absence. Suffering is still painful. Otherwise, it would not be suffering, but we can rejoice because God is working out His plan even in the midst of our anguish. What is that plan? What is that purpose? Verse 7 tells us, trials test the genuineness of our faith so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested may fire by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ he says there are various trials that word there for trials is is has a root that it's called tribulum now tribulum what is what is a tribulum in the, in ancient roman times a tribulum was basically a giant threshing sled, okay? And they would run that over wheat to separate the chaff, right? But it would, they would be designed in such a way where it would have slats and sharp stones and rough bits of iron, and it would separate the chaff from the wheat without destroying the wheat. And it would keep it intact. And that's the word here, various trials. And that's exactly what trials do. It has a way of threshing and sifting and sorting and proving the genuineness of your faith Not destroying it, but proving it and laying it out for all to see. This is the purpose of trial. Peter says, you have been distressed by various trials. They're all a part of God's tribulum, threshing sled. And approved faith, he says, is far more valuable than any perishable gold in this life. And that's because the latter is temporary and perishes. Indeed, gold is. But it's also compared to gold because like gold, it is refined and proved through fire. 
And what an apt description of suffering, right? Fire. Painful, intense fire. Peter reminds believers again that the test may be intense, it may be stringent. And we know that life as aliens in this planet is anything but easy, and yet by God's grace, the, the lives of believers are filled with joy. Our lives are not filled with gloomy moaning, right? Where you just walk around moaning all the time. I asked you two weeks ago, think of a person which you have just you have watched and observed suffer in exemplary fashion, and all of you could think of that person. Did they live their lives walking around moaning all the time? Were they a drain in your life? More than likely, that person you identified and you recalled and has blessed your life by God's grace, person still lived this life full of joy, and you probably walked around way going, I came to visit this person to encourage them, and I leave with them having encouraged me. You know those people, right? This is what is produced in believers that are filled with hope, who know the true grace of God and stand firm in it. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we feel the heat of life. Sometimes God is the one who actually turns up that heat, to be sure. His providence rests on every trial that we experience. Nevertheless, Peter goes on to say, led by God's Spirit, God-directed worship is my reflex in the midst of suffering, not only because my gospel life is from above, my gospel life is guarded, My gospel life is refined, but also my gospel life is secure. Verses 8 through 9. As we consider how God uses our sufferings to assist us in obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, verse 9, he also notes how these present-day sufferings heighten our awareness of the separation we feel from the presence of Jesus, right? He concludes, and though you have not seen him, for us, we've not seen him with our own eyes, nevertheless, we love him. And though you do not see him now, which is true, but believe in him, and we're grateful that for us, be mindful of this, our believing is not based upon seeing, is it? Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, this is a hope that should animate every believer. That Christ will be seen by all one day with our our own eyes. And we're looking forward to that day, yes? Even those who have never seen Him. Their sufferings was not to make them morose. It was not to make them miserable. They are not dashed to the ground by their trouble. Though they are filled with love for Jesus Christ. Though you do not see Him, you love Him. Why should we be filled with such love? Why should we be filled with such love? Look at verse 9. Because it is through faith in Jesus that our salvation is procured. Right? It is the outcome of our faith. What does that produce in you? Even though I don't see Him with with my own eyes in this life, even though I don't live in a day where I walked with him and saw his ministry in the here and now. I see his ministry if I pay enough attention, but I'm talking in an earthly sense where he is on this planet in incarnated form, right? Even though I don't see him with my own physical eyes, I love him, right? Because through faith, I have a salvation that leads to my Inheritance being received in full. This is the outcome of my faith. And we have a few questions to ask just for application. I want to hear from you. Always try to commit the last 10 minutes to to interact with each other. And this is where you can offer some insight and thought as to, okay, what do we do with this in the sense of living what we learn? Question number one, for the sake of time, when faced with suffering... What are other common reflexes other than God-directed worship? We've already kind of touched on some of these. What are some other common reflexes other than God-directed worship? 
As you identify these, you need to take careful note of that because you can be cognizant of it as your life is marked by these things. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm not saying blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. I am guilty of what? What are some common reflexes? What's that? Huh? Woe is me. Excellent. What else? Fear. Anxiety. Yeah. Responding in our own strength or according to our own wisdom. That's good. What's that? Doubt. We begin to start to, yeah, become rattled in doubt. Maybe God's promises. Blame. We begin to blame God. That goes back to that anger and bitterness. Isolation? Yeah. We suffer in isolation. We crawl in on ourselves. We become spiritual hermits of which we were never designed to be. We were meant to suffer in community. Anything else? Taylor. Taking sinful measures to get out of it. Man, there's a, <laughs> that's a broad thing. I think someone said at some point compromise, right? So we can compromise to try to alleviate the suffering that goes back to earthly wisdom. But even just selfish means substance abuse. Well, let me just drown it out, right? Let me pursue indulgences that would just kind of numb the pain, so to speak. Let me medicate this in some way. Any other things? Okay, distraction. Fill my life with distraction. Try to ignore it. It's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. All of these. Thank you for the bow, the tying on that. All of this is self-worship. The opposite of God, directed worship. Excellent. Second question. What are some reasons why we often fail to see suffering through the lens of 1 Peter 3 through 9? We don't what? We don't maintain an eternal perspective. Why is that not the case? Okay, suffering's happening right now, and that's where our focus typically goes, right in the here and now. It's, it's not our impulse to think eternal, right? I think as human beings, our impulse and natural instinct is to think right now, tangible, front of me. When we stub our toe, I don't think about my hand. Thank you for the object lesson. I need those. Absolutely. We go right to where the pain is. Doesn't it require a bit of training to see suffering through the lens of 1 Peter 1, 3-9, if that's not our instinct? What's that? Prayer. That leads us to the third question. What are wise and practical ways we can encourage those who suffer? How can we train ourselves? Prayer. Prayerfulness. Be in the Word. Keep resting in the lens that is First Peter 3-9. through Yes, Mr. Wendell. Yeah. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn these statutes. What was the verse? Psalm 119.71. That's a good one. It's good... To say that, it was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. What else? Practical and wise ways we can encourage those who suffer. Yes, yes. So he said, for all in the back, could you hear him? Probably not, I know. Um, It is when we see people suffer well, tell them, encourage them, and convey to them what an encouragement they are to us. Yeah, there's a sweet ministry there as well. Helps eliminate shame as well. That's exactly right. Thank you for mentioning that. There's this, there is this shame that uh, gets induced in our lives. And sometimes it's uh, self-inflicted. It's self-invented. But it's shame nevertheless. It's guilt. It can lead to the isolation that we talked about. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you start to become maybe Job's friends where you start to give bad counselor. And there's even bad theology there. Health and wealth will blame sin. Uh, God, no doubt, can discipline. Um, 
But an unwise, unwise way, an unhelpful way is, is to come and discourage via well, what sin is in your life that's, that's led to this. Um, what's that? Yeah. I appreciate it because there's a, I appreciate you saying that there's a spiritual persistence in, I think you said, bearing up with one another, right? And there's an authenticity and a genuineness and relational equity that is bound up in the community of God that I know Chris Teagle loves me, right? So when he comes and washes me with the word and speaks spiritual truth into my life, it's not a theological treatise and, and, and lecture, but he loves me, right? Because he's coming alongside me. There's a difference in coming over someone and beating someone with the theological club versus coming alongside and wrapping your arms around their shoulder, weeping with those who weep, and running them to truth in a kind and warm, gracious way, right? Those look very different. And unfortunately, you have, well, gratefully, you have the latter happen in the church all the time, but you also have the unhelpful version in the church happen as well. Uh, we have a lot of club swingers, and, and they bring their Bible which is good, but the delivery sometimes is can be worked on. Okay? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And even that passage has a still a very doxological tone to it, right? Because it starts, blessed be the God and Father of our Right? God and Father, the Father of all comfort, right? God of all mercy. And he was, he was conveying, 2 Corinthians? 1? 1, right? So he comforts us and we extend that same comfort to others, right? There's a ministry there. Yeah. Last one. Yeah, absolutely. There's like a spiritual persistence there. I mean, it can, it can be um, to truly live out the one another's of the New Testament and come alongside one another, bear one another's burdens. Can have a measure of fatigue and tired, uh, tiredness to it as well, for sure, of which the Lord has to sustain us in that. But that's that's the body of Christ. That's what we do, right? We are his people, and we love one another in this way. And over the course of decades, we take turns, <laughs> in different seasons, don't we, uh, in our life. So, yeah, good stuff, sweet stuff. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the richness of your word. We, we pray in advance for our time as we are in Psalm 29 here in the next few minutes. Help us to rest under this, you, our God, who reveals yourself in history with all power and glory. Uh, we pray that would you full, fuel our worship, that it would be honoring and sweet to you. Lord, help us not to sit in that chair in the next hour harboring any sin, but Lord, may we be right with you, ready and eager in anticipation of what you will do in our lives for your great praise. We thank you for your people, for the church. We thank you for this place, Lord, where your word is honored and your son is lifted high. We pray that you help us now in rendering to you the praise that you rightfully, rightfully deserve. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.